Okay, 2 Chronicles 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building. And then he fortified Geba and Mizpah. At that time, Hanani, the seer, which is a prophet, by the way, he came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians in the Lubum an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that, that he may strongly support those who've her, whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on you will surely have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now the acts of Asa from the first to the last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the thirty-ninth year of his reign, Asa became distressed in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Let's pray. Lord, this uh, passage has lots to say to us. I pray, Lord, that uh, only truth would come out of my mouth. Uh, the way your spirit intended it to be taught and read. And that uh, as you know how much is in my head this week from everything I've been learning, just help me sort out what what needs to be said, what needs to be discarded, and the ways in which to say it to make the truth clear. I don't want to be a stumbling block in terms of confusing people about what's going on. I want to be clear and concise and uh, your name and your word be honored. So we just pray for these things now. Amen. All right, as you see, the title of the sermon is Relying on God in the Midst of Uncertainty. So as you noticed, we, we are taking a break from Timothy. We will be going back to Timothy in a couple of weeks, but for now we're breaking from it. I thought it would be appropriate, to, at least this week and maybe even next, to spend some time looking in God's Word in response to the situation that we've been facing over the last couple of weeks. And it's an understatement to say it's been very interesting times for all of us. Now, I know a lot of emotions have arisen in the Christian community as to what's going on here. Uh, various thoughts have emerged as to what the source of all this is. Um, there's extreme ends. Um, some people think this is God's doing, and He's doing this to usher in the second coming and to speed the process up. Um, some people think it's a call to the world to repent and to turn to Him. Others uh, think this is just the result of living in the fallen world, and this is just what it is to bump shoulders with the brokenness of our world. 
and a lot of you maybe hold to these views and some of you might be in between. But my point of the message today is not to try to determine who's the cause and what's going on and what's the whole end purpose in this. I'm not going to delve into any of that about who's right, who's wrong, which has merit. I just want to help you learn from today's word to gain God's perspective and times of how he wants us to respond in the midst of trials and uncertainty. How he wants us to respond. So let me give you the background and history to this whole story. We're going to waggle on the tee with a golf club for a while before we actually uh, get into the passage, okay? So here's, I want you to see, um, oh, for some reason this is not moving forward. There we go. I want you to see this map and I'll speak to you as we go along using this. But under the reign of Asa, the nation of Israel was a divided king. Oh, that's crazy how that happened. Okay, so you, you, you see the map. Okay, perfect. Um, so under the reign of Asa, the nation of Israel was a divided kingdom. Divided kingdom. We have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now remember in Israel's history, this was not always the case. At one point they were united. When the Jews entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, he took over the land of Canaan, which you can see here in the green and the, in the um, orange, which is the total land. He took that over and divided the land into 12 tribes. After the conquest of that land, Israel managed to stay unified as a nation for approximately 400 years. The split occurred when King Solomon's son Rehoboam took over the leadership after his dad died. Now the reason for the split is detailed in 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 10, but let me give you a summary. When Solomon became king in succession after David, who was his father, he inherited a united kingdom. So there was no such thing as Israel and Judah in terms of a division and border. Everything would have been orange or everything would have been green. The problem was at the end of Solomon's reign, he had steeped into idolatry. And the result was that God said, I'm going to basically tear the kingdom in, in, in two. And I'm going to give the ten tribes of the northern kingdom to one king, but I will allow two tribes in the south to be reigned under another. The other issue was that Solomon had imposed hard labor and heavy taxation on the nation to complete massive building projects such as the temple, Solomon's palace where he lived, the wall of Jerusalem, and key military cities. So after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam had taken over, and the elders who had served along Solomon came to Rehoboam and said, Listen, if you want the kingdom to stay unified and to go well, alleviate the hard labor and the heavy taxation on the, on the nation and enlighten the load. Now at first Rehoboam said, sure, I'll consider it. But later on, um, he changed his mind under the, under the influence of, of some younger friends. And not only did he lighten it, he increased it. And you can imagine what that would do to a nation <laughs> when you're under, like when you're under these huge uh, work projects and you have like a, you go to work breaking your back every day and a new king comes in and makes it even harder for you in your work and increases your taxes. You're not a very popular king. Well, the result was this. After hearing what Rehoboam was going to do and he wasn't going to lighten the taxes and lighten the load, the, there was a revolt and the kingdom split into two. So the ten tribes became under the leadership of a man named Jeroboam in Israel, and Judah stayed under a, a, uh, with uh, Benjamin and 
Judah as the two tribes, stayed under the unification of Rehoboam. So Rehoboam and Jeroboam, two similar names but different kings. And so what's interesting about Jeroboam, though, who took over Israel, he used to work for Solomon. He was actually the head of the hard labor force. He was the chief foreman in Solomon's camp. And so when Solomon died, um, he was ticked at Solomon already. And then when Rehoboam made it worse for him, Jeroboam revolted and took over leadership. Now his disdain for the south and for Jerusalem and the kings there was evident. He took some real drastic steps to make it clear he wanted nothing to do with Judah in the south. One of the things he did was, remember that you would have to worship in Jerusalem uh, three times a year for major feasts and the temple was located. Uh, Jeroboam said this, we are not going to associate with you in any way with the worship of Israel or with Judah and have anything to do with Jerusalem. And so he set up places for worship in the north. And if you look at the northern tip of that map, you'll see a place called Dan. And in it, there's a white box that says Jer Jeroboam built a sanctuary. That um, What that was is he built a place of worship, set up an altar, but he didn't worship God. He didn't worship Jehovah, the Israel's God. He, he steeped the Israel into uh, major idolatry. And I want to show you uh, some pictures from Israel here of what Laurel and I got to see when we were over there. Uh, these are these are fascinating. So Kevin and Nevi will recognize the, the guy on the steps. That's uh, Peter, uh, their brother-in-law, and uh, that's Dan Jansen who trained me for ministry there on the on the side. So what this is is we're at Jeroboam's altar. They uncovered it archaeologically, and we're there. And this is the steps leading up to the altar, where all the sacrifices of the pigs and different things they would have done in, in, in you know, the, um, and all the different animals and all the prostitution that went on there, everything. It was all like a place of idolatry, right? But what's interesting is Peter's demonstrating why these steps are significant. Do you know what God's command was for the altar in Israel and Jerusalem, how it was to be built? It was to be a ramp. It was to look like this. The reason was, is remember, priests wore long robes. When you would walk up there, your, your robe along a ramp would just skiff the surface of it as you walked. When you built steps, you'd have to lift your leg. That's me in the corner there. <laughs> Lifting your leg, you can see my ankle. Well, this, the sign of nakedness on, at God's temple, at God's altar, was a sign of sexual immorality. <laughs> It was an embracing of like the, the prostitution, the homosexual acts that were going on, all these types of things. It was a brace, an embrace of sexual immorality. So when the priests would go up to worship, and, on, and you can see the, the outline of the altar here, where it had been set up, it was basically uh, the priest basically giving the finger, really, to God, saying, we don't want anything to do with you. And so they built steps intentionally and avoided a ramp as a sign of defiance against God, Israel of God. So Jeroboam was intentional in the way he did worship and the way he rebelled against Judah and Jerusalem and the God of Israel. Now, this is really important. I mean, it's, it's really good for you to know history and understand what's going on in Israel's uh, history. And I know I took some time outside the passage to talk about it, but I wanted to understand the history and the geography to help us understand what's going on in our passage. Um, if we go back to this map again, we have three players in our story in verses 1 and 2. One, we have Asa, the king of Judah in the south, who's in charge of uh, 
Judah and Benjamin. He's the third king in succession after Rehoboam. Third king. And we have Baasha, king of Israel in the north. Third in succession after Jeroboam. But we are introduced to another fellow in verse 2, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. And if you look to the top right-hand corner, you'll see Aram. And he was from Damascus, where the capital was. And that's modern-day Syria. In fact, Damascus still exists today, and it's still a city in Syria. So that's the Gibeah geography of the land. Now, one more important uh, comment about Asa, and we'll move on. Asa, according to Scripture, was a righteous king. A righteous king. This is really important for us in the sermon because in the book of Kings and Chronicles, there were, there were really, there were a ton of kings, but they only fell under two camps. They either were totally devoted to God or they were totally wicked. They were either the King David type or they were the Jeroboam type. Well, for our purposes, King Asa was dedicated to the Lord. In, in 1 Kings 15, 14, it says that the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. Again, this is important because the majority of kings didn't uh, worship the Lord. And we get a glimpse of his devotion in the early chapters before chapter 16. In chapter 14, you can even just flip there if you want, to back a couple. In chapter 14, we see him devoted in worship. In verses 1 through 8, he tears through Israel, ripping down all the altars and high places and sacred pillars that are dedicated to false gods. These have been set up by Solomon when he fell into idolatry, and he's ripping, uh, he's, he's freeing Israel of idolatrous practices and returning people to worshiping God alone. The result, he receives blessing. He gets a blessing. It says in verse 1 in chapter 14, the land was undisturbed for 10 years during his days. There was a blessing to him for going God's way. Another thing he did was in times of fear and uncertainty, he turned to God solely for protection. In chapter 14, in 9 through 15, there's a war with Ethiopia. They come against him. They, they outnumber Israel, two to, or Judah, I should say, two to one. And Asa's response is this in verse 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there's no one besides you to help in this battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are God, let no man prevail against you. Guess what the Lord did by him turning to him first? In verse 12, the Lord rooted the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. There was victory, again, blessing from turning to God first before he turned anywhere else. And finally, this guy who had a sensitivity to the word of God, he was obedient to God's word. In chapter 15, a prophet is sent to Asa with a message. He says, if you continue to honor God with your life and lead the nation this way, you will walk in blessing. If you don't, God's going to basically come against you. Immediately after the prophetic message, Asa goes to work. He removes further idols from the land, enters into a covenant with the people that they would seek him with their whole heart. To the point that he says in verse 12, uh, 12 through 15, uh, if, you don't, if the people didn't do this, they'd be put to death. Could you imagine a pastor of a church standing up and saying to the congregation, we're going to enter in a covenant with the Lord, and if we find any rebellion in you, you're practicing sin, we're going to put you to death? I mean, this is the kind of king this guy was in terms of commitment and loyalty. What was the result, though, of his commitment? Once again, for the third time, God blessed him. He gave him further peace in the land. There was no more war. 
Now it's important to see Asa in this light because we begin to see a drastic change in this guy's life in our passage. And really he committed two foolish acts that we want to talk to now. The first foolish act that he did was this, that in the midst of fear, he relied on the finances that were at his disposal over and above God for security and protection. In the midst of fear, he relied on the finances that were at his disposal over and above God for security and protection. Read verse 1 with me and we'll begin this now. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Let's refer back to this map again. Ramah was located about 10 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And um, it was a strategic place because it was all along the main, on along the major trade route into into Jerusalem. So if you wanted to go north into Israel, you'd go along this road where Ramah was located. If you wanted to come south from Israel into Judah, that's where the road was located. So Israel, under the leadership of Baasha, makes an aggressive move. He goes to take take Ramah, the city, which is just ten clicks north of Jerusalem. And he besieges it and basically fortifies it to make a military stronghold. Now this is important because this is a fearful time for Asa. What he did, what what Baasha did to him was really, he isolated him. (laughs) He isolated him. He couldn't go north. He couldn't go, and to go south was to go to Egypt. So he 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 was in essence quarantined. He couldn't go anywhere. He was stuck in his own land, in his own territory. It was a very fearful time for Asa. Because Israel possessed a major threat. So from everything we know of him, you'd expect he would turn to the Lord. That's what he did when the Ethiopians came against him. But that's not what happens. In verse 2, it says that Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Benadad listened to the king Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And they conquered Ejan, Dan, Abel, Mim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. And then king Asa brought all Judah, brought all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building. And with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. You can see geographically what's going on here on our map. Israel has a peace treaty with Syria. That makes sense. They share a northern border. There was what what uh, Asia wanted to do was to employ or to bribe the Syrian king to break the treaty he had with Israel in the north, so that they would come and protect him. But that would mean that they would have to attack Israel in the north, drawing their forces away from. Uh, from Ramah to protect the northern borders. Now from Asa's perspective, the pers- it worked brilliantly. The plan was um, amazing and it worked flawlessly because in verse 5 we see not only did Baasha leave Ramah unoccupied, removing the military threat, but in verse 6 he's able to dismantle all the progress that he had made and use the materials to strengthen their own borders. So again, from, it's, from his point of view, it's a successful trip or a successful plan. Now, while Asa's emotions aren't recorded here, I'm sure he felt a great sense of relief 
for the victory and security he gained and the protection he wanted. I picture him in the Oval Office. This is what his body posture would have been hands behind his head, feet on the desk, cigar in his mouth with a shot of probably whiskey, smoking a cigar, watching Netflix. That's the picture of Aesa leaning back with his ingenious plan. The problem was, from God's perspective, it may have been a success on earth, but it was a failure in heaven. It may have been a success on earth, but it was a failure in heaven. Look at verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Isa, the king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hands. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lumen an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you shall surely have wars. You see, the issue for God was not that he was against treaties. Other places in the Bible, he did, he did treaties with other nations. It wasn't that he took the initiative to come up with military strategies. That was also approved other, in other places by God. The issue was that he solely relied on the pagan king for the future security of the nation and left God completely out. Now, this issue of reliance is really important. If you like to mark up your Bibles, it occurs three times in verses 7 and 8. He says there in, in verse uh, 7, Because you've relied on the king of Aram and not relied on your God. In verse 8, he says, Because you've, you, you, failed, you, yeah, you relied on the Lord. Because you did that with the Ethiopians, he delivered you from their hands. The issue of reliance was the key thing here. But again, back to my original lesson that I showed you earlier, the key for us is how did he create the reliance? How did he get Aram to act? Well, he took money from the, the silver and gold from the treasuries, not only of the temple, but also his own house. So he used the Lord's money and his personal finances to secure his future. In the midst of his quarantine, in the midst of his self-isolation, he relied on money to get him out of a jam. He did not turn to the Lord. And you know what, church? Well, actually, yeah. It's no wonder, though, too, that uh, Ben-Hadad agreed to these terms because in 1 Kings, in chapter 15, it says there that the, large, the sum of the money was that he took all of the money out of the treasury, all of the money of the king's house. He left himself basically broke. Again, it's not that God had an issue with Asa being wealthy. The reason he was wealthy was because God had blessed him in the past due to godly decisions he'd been making for years. So God was the rewarder of his wealth. He'd been making good decisions. He, made godly, he was going God's way with, with idols and worship and listening to the prophets and, and with making good financial decisions. It was a blessing that he had money. But he'd become dependent on the wealth, first and foremost, above the Lord, to provide him with security. And he missed out on God's blessing. He missed out this time. In verse 7, it reveals from the prophet that he would have given the army of the king of Aram to him in his hand. 
And he said, because in verse 9, you did this, you will now have wars. Asa didn't know that God had a plan for his life. He was going to give him Syria in victory one day in the future. But because he went ahead of God and trusted in his own finances and his own wisdom, he actually missed out on God's blessing. Instead of being at peace with Syria, ended up having wars in the land. And this is where it's a huge lesson for us. Because we have a temptation right now, church, to follow in Asa's footsteps. We have a real temptation to do this as well. To rely on our finances and the wealth that we have to get us through this time and not turn to him. It's times like this, it's easy to try to protect our future and give us a sense of security by doing so. And this is going to come, I'm going to act like a prophet now. Prophets aren't popular. <laughs> they were thrown in jail and beheaded. But I don't have a choice. This is, these are two areas in which we are tempted as a Christians right now in our church in Genesis house. You see, God asks us to be generous. With, he asks us in, in the area of finances to, to trust Him in two areas. One is generosity. Number two is in tithing. Giving to God what's first. These are two areas in which we are, we are asked by God to commit to. Now, the logic in times of fear is that we have to hold on to our money. We have to protect it because by doing so, we'll have more in the end. But that's not God's logic. That's not God's logic. That's the world's logic. Look at verse 9. He says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely to his. When people obey his commands, he's looking to support them. He's not looking to withdraw. We have a personal God who's interested in our lives. He's looking to take care of us. He's looking to support us. In this context for Asa, it was protection from the, the um, uh, from uh, con potential conquering nations that wanted to threaten his borders. When he was obedient, he got peace. He got peace, and he, and he would he would have worse. Uh, yeah, he would just he would, he would benefit. It's, it's so tempting for us right now to say, you know what, I'm going to stop tithing and I'm going to stop being generous because I need to take care and secure my future. But you know what? That's not what God wants. That's not how God thinks. Yes, maybe you have to adjust it. Maybe adjustments need to be made based on income coming in. But to stop these things is to go contrary to God's way. Because what you're saying is this, I don't believe, Lord, that you can take care of me in these times. So I'm going to protect my future and take care of myself. But let me remind you of the New Testament passages that promise these things. 2 Corinthians 9 says this, He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who spares, reaps, or sows bountifully will sow, or sows bountifully will reap bountifully. For God loves a cheerful giver. Philippians 4 um, Paul's in distress, he's in jail, and uh, Epaphroditus comes with a gift of money to help support him in ministry. And he says, I received your gift, Philippian church, Epaphroditus has brought it. It's a fragrant aroma, well-pleasing to God. And then he says this, as a result, my God will supply your needs. Supply, support, you pick the words. Luke 12, Jesus says this to his disciples, Do not worry about life as to what you will eat 
or where clothes are going to come from. Consider the ravens, consider the lilies. Do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. The markets are crashing. Oh no, right? What are we going to do? But Jesus says this, your father knows what you need and he knows you need these things. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Our problem, church, is the reason why we hold in these types of areas is because we want to know when He's going to provide and how He's going to provide, so that we have this. We, that gives us the confidence to give it. The problem is, is if we if we got that in advance and God downloaded that information to us, that wouldn't be trust. That's not trust. It takes trust to take Him at His word at face value and operate in His commands. You want to look different in this world right now, in this in this crisis. Continue, continue in these areas financially, and turn to the Lord first for your provisions. Doesn't the Lord's prayer now take on a totally different meaning to, than it ever has in your life? The rest of the world understands this. We never have had to give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> when you've read that. It's more like, well, I'll just, you know, I'm providing myself my own daily bread, and so that, that passage doesn't really apply to me. Man, if, if it continues on for, you know, months and months and months, and we get out of work, that passage, well, that prayer will take on way more meaning. I'll leave you with one more point. This is what 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Hasn't that this time proved that? <laughs> it's affected the high school kid all the way to the rich and famous. No one's unaffected. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The problem with Asa is he put his hope in, in his wealth. And he, through that, secured the, uh, a treaty with Aram to secure his borders. Again, it was a great idea in, on earth, but a bad idea in heaven. And we are tempted in the exact same area to focus on, on the finances and, and manipulating those things in a way to secure us. You turn to the Lord first. The first. Don't make the mistake of Asa. Now you would have hoped this would have produced repentance in Asa. This, this message from a prophet. This, this message of uh, coming to him and basically saying, you know, God sees everything. He's not surprised by the circumstances you're facing. You have acted foolishly, but he's looking to support those whose heart is completely his. You think Asa, at that moment, when the thing, okay, pull to David. Okay, God, I've sinned against you in this area. I'm going to repent. Sadly, that's not the case. In verse 10, Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa pressed some of the people at the same time. Asa who used to love the word of God and hearing from the prophets and walk in obedience to him, threw him in the stocks. He threw him in stocks. He put him in prison. He became enraged at the word of God and angry at the message as opposed to repenting. What, what voice used to be like music to his ears and welcomed had now become odious to him. And let's just say, church, it's a dangerous place to be when in response to God's word, one stubbornly refuses to listen and gets angry because it only leads to further consequences. And this was the case for Asa 
And this is the case of a second foolish act. His second foolish act was this. In the midst of sickness, he depended solely on the medical professionals for direction and not God. He took his cues in life in his sickness from the medical professional field and not the Lord. We pick this up in verse 12. In the, third, uh, in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Asa's sickness here is described as being diseased in his feet. There's no specifics given to what this really looked like. Maybe it was diabetes, uh, maybe it was osteo, you know, osteoarthritis, who knows? We, did, we just don't have no idea. But what's important for us is not so much what he had, but how he coped with his little personal pandemic. It says here, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now let me just say this, God has no problems with doctors or their methods in which they try to bring healing about. There's been tremendous benefits in the medical advances that we have. And just to show you that God's in, in favor of doctors and even in like the, the methods they use, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and the book of Luke, was a physician. He was a physician. We know this from Colossians chapter 4. He was a physician. He was Paul's traveling companion. He wrote two books in the New Testament. God's clearly in favor of doctors. There's nothing wrong with that profession. He's, and even, and, um, he's not even uh, uh, so concerned about the methods they use in, in many instances. I mean, in that day, they would have probably used wine to help with medicinal e uh, issues with stomach problems. Hence why Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Probably, I'm, I'm, I have no proof of this, but maybe Paul turned to Luke one day and said, what are we going to do about Timothy suffering? And, and, and Luke said, hey, Give him some wine. That'll be good for his belly. So again, the issue is not with doctors and, their, and some of their methods. The issue for Asa was that he took his cues solely from the physicians and how to deal with his ailment and left God completely out of the equation. I think there's an important lesson for us right now, church, in this. You see, up to this point in, their, in, in, in the issue we're facing right now, the narrative, in terms of determining the direction of our health and well-being, has been dictated by the World Health Organization and our government in Canada. And here's the thing. The, the medical doctors are the ones talking to these leaders who are then passing on the information. That's how it's going. Often we see, I think it's Hinshaw, I think that's her person's name, they're with uh, the leaders often when uh, standing beside them when they give their, their, uh, their information to the nation about what's going on. The thing is, this changes daily. The information changes daily. Now, hear me very clearly. I'm not, I understand why they're doing what they're doing, and I'm not denying their reasoning for why they're doing it. So I'm not in any way uh, trying to like uh, create a start a fight here. I understand the, the ramifications and, and their purpose behind what they're doing. And up to this point, it's been fairly easy actually to comply with the restrictions they put in place. But here's the thing, and so I don't, for you and me, we've been able to comply so far with fairly good attitudes towards everything. But here's the thing, church. I hope even in this that you're somewhat conflicted. I hope you're somewhat conflicted. 
Because if this continues to go on for a long period of time, let's say this moves into like a, a year or a year and a half, or maybe in 10 years, something else comes and it's mandated because of what happened in the past that we spend two years in isolation. I hope you understand that this really challenges us in areas that God has, has asked us to do. You know the two areas God has asked us to be compliant to in His Word? Hospitality and meeting together as believers. He says, I want he, hospitality is something that God asks of us to do and meeting together as believers. Now again, I'm not speaking out against the, the government mandate right now. I understand exactly why they're doing what they're doing and it's been easy to comply. But how, let's say this becomes a long, long-term process and this becomes a pattern in which we have to live. I hope you're conflicted in the idea that it's going up against some of the things that God has asked us to do. And now we're forced, whether we take our cues from the medical profession or for the things that the Lord asks us to do. And again, the temptation for us is to fixate on the media's narrative on health and wealth. But those are not the narratives of Scripture. Those aren't the narratives of Scripture in terms of how we're to act. We're to take our cues from God. And here's why it's important for us. See, our hope in terms of our well-being is not found in this world or in this lifetime. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, His love for us, knowing the future He has in store for us. The world here is not the end. The, this is just the beginning. What God, The resurrected body, the life that's pain-free, all those things are coming in the resurrection and in heaven. And I want to leave you with two men who had the, underst had the understanding of what, what the where um, our well-being is to come from and, and where we're to be strong. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah. Habakkuk, Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah. In chapter 3, here's what's crazy. Pending doom was coming upon Judah. Pending doom. Babylon was going to come wipe them out, and there were some horrific descriptions of what this was going to look like. It was fearful if you were to live in Judah in those days. And this is what Habakkuk the prophet says, knowing that everything's going to be ripped from him and the nation was going to be in huge trouble in terms of their health and well-being. He said this, I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to rise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. With health and well-being being threatened, he rejoices in the Lord. He turns to God first because that's where his hope is lying. One more and we'll finish. Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 and 21. Paul is, knows his life is coming to an end soon. Not quite, but he knows it's coming to an end. He's He's, he's, it's the writings on the wall. And he's talking about this idea that he's, he's, he's torn. He's torn because he knows he wants to stay on earth to, to, to live for Christ and to do his work. But he has this deep desire to go to glory and be with him. So he's conflicted because he knows, he knows like, well, he's not conflicted. He just understands that both are good options for him. And he says this, I will not be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, his physical body, whether by life or death. Christ be exalted either through life or death. 
Now watch this. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. His well-being is wrapped up in the fact that he knows Jesus Christ and that when he dies, he knows where he's going. He's, he's wrapped up in the fact that it's good. In other words, Paul says this, I can't lose no matter what. If I stay around, if I stay around and, and have a longer life, fantastic, and I'm grateful for the opportunities that I have. If I don't, I, I, I gain. I gain. I get to be with the Lord. So this is really important, church, as we reconsider how to think like um, God's way in the midst of circumstances we're facing. I'll give you the lessons to finish. Number one, I love this. In fact, I was considering making this the only lesson for the whole sermon. That's how important this lesson is. It could have been enough to, to, to continue the conversation. No problem can arise for God's people, which God is not aware. Right? That's, that's Corinthian, or 2 Chronicles 9. The Lord's eyes are moving to and fro throughout the earth. Right? And from which he cannot deliver them. He's looking to support those whose heart is strongly in favor for him. Provided their hearts are fully committed. It's a fantastic lesson. God's aware of what's going on. He can deliver if he chooses to, provided their hearts are fully committed. God, in a moment, could turn the stock market around. He could turn the, the sickness around. He could, if he chooses to. He's, not, he's aware of it. He could deliver. And he's not. this doesn't worry him one bit. Second lesson. There are tremendous blessings that come from God when we choose to go his way. King Asa, man, the guy, it said three times in chapter 14 and 15 that the God blessed him. God blessed him. God blessed him. He made the Lord the priority in worship, the Lord priority in the way he handled military uh, battles. He made the Lord the priority in terms of responding to the God's word in terms of when the prophets had come to him. Every time there was peace or prosperity that came to his life. Because he kept going God's way. There's fruit from going God's way. That is clear from the scriptures in, in, in terms of King Asa. And it's true for us as well. The reason why many of us can weather this storm currently, and um, a lot of it has to do with, um, because because of going God's way, we do have um, financial resources in order to get us through tough times. Some of us are healthy right now because we've made really good decisions from abstaining from things that are harmful to the body that God would not want us to do. A lot of us have good relationships with our kids or have good marriages because we've embraced God's ways for the way like these relational things go on. So we know that these things can be true for us as well. doesn't mean life's always going to be easy, but there are blessings from going God's way. Third, the benefits of health or wealth from living a godly life are not to become our security, however, as God is our hope regardless of our circumstances. That is clear from the text. It's clear from Philippians and, and from Paul and King Habakkuk's, uh, or Prophet Habakkuk's words, 1 Timothy 6 as well. There are benefits from, from these things, but they're not to become our security. God is to be our hope. And finally, I like this one. Godly people overcome uncertainty by rejoicing in the Lord. Whether I live or whether I die, I, I'm, I'm content, Paul says. Habakkuk says, even though distress is coming upon me, Babylon's coming to wipe us out and we're going to lose everything. I will still rejoice in the Lord.
Let's have a time of discussion. When you want to speak, just unmute. Then when you finish, just mute yourself again.